What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Hello in real life, I should say. <laughs> I was talking to Orlando about that. Okay, excellent. That's a great way to start this podcast. So for oh, everybody, no, no, we're starting that way. No, that's the way Let's we start. Yeah. This is, this is real. There's no editing here yeah. at the Automarkers Podcast. <laughs> so for those of you watching, um, please note that Adam does not look this yellow in real life. I am Although you don't really look that yellow. <laughs> but it is the last week of your Broadway show. So you got to be kind of tired. Man, right? I'm a little fried, but actually, uh, as of about 40 minutes ago, I got some great news. We're extending for another week. So oh, hell yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, we're going till August 13th. Now, we uh, we were trying to extend they had another renter in the space, but they dropped out. So uh, so we scooped that up. So uh, yeah, you're, you're the uh, the first to know. No, oh, beautiful, man. Beautiful. Well, tell uh, let everybody know what this what this uh, show is all about. A psychedelic off Broadway spectacular one man extravaganza <laughs> with song and dance. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no song and no dance. Uh, actually, there is one scene where I, I do uh, I do a little dancing, but uh, not in the traditional Broadway sense. It's recounting a particular uh, no jazz hands. What do you mean? No jazz hands. No jazz hands. We'll save that for the full Broadway version. Right now, we're just <laughs> okay, off good. Broadway. Yeah. So. Uh, no, the show, it's called The Mushroom Cure. It's a completely true story. Uh, and the, the sort of capsule version of it is I had very debilitating obsessive compulsive disorder for, for more than a decade. Uh, I had tried everything. I had been on uh, over a dozen different prescription medications, SSRIs, benzos, uh, atypical antipsychotics, everything. Uh, seen all sorts of specialists. Uh, I had tried a bunch of holistic approaches and nothing had helped. Uh, which, by the way, and we can talk more about this, is not that unusual for OCD. There's a lot of OCD sufferers out there who just their issues are not adequately addressed with current uh, current treatments. So, paint a picture. Paint a picture of your life when you were at the at the peak of, uh, of OCD. Yeah. So, um, well, my OCD. Um, well, just to finish the very capsule version. So then I read a study um, in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry that. Uh, showed that psilocybin actually seemed to have tremendous efficacy with OCD. Um, so I embarked, as I say in my marketing, on a program of vigilante psychopharmacology. I tried to, <laughs> to cure myself that way, really out of desperation. Um, and that, that's what the show is about. Really, the show begins when I read that study, and, uh, and it sort of chronicles my uh, attempts to, to try to treat myself. So uh, to answer your question, the OCD for me, you know, the sort of popular conception of OCD is is hand washing, contamination fear. That was not what I had. And that's actually, that's probably the most common strain, but there's many, many sufferers who have different sort of manifestations. For me, it was actually about decision-making. 
which I thought you'd find particularly interesting because in a sense, I was really trying to optimize everything, which I know is uh, something you find, uh, you know, something that's, that you gravitate towards. But I was going to an extreme degree. Um, so a typical example, it could involve anything. It could involve what shirt to put on. Uh, I could, I'd put on a shirt. And as soon as I put it on, I'd think, you know what? No, this, is, this isn't the right one. For whatever reason, there was something wrong with it. It wasn't the right shirt for the right occasion. Right. And so I'd change it. And as soon as I put on another shirt, I'd say, wait, no, you know what? The first one was the right one. And I'd put that one back on. And, you know, I could spend an hour doing that. And an hour may not sound like that much. I mean, it is. But, but then that, you know, you have to multiply that by every trivial decision. What side of the street to walk down? What to eat? Um, I'm a stand-up comic. So what jokes would I do in what comedy club set in what order? And it just completely took over my life. Because, you know, if you think about it, I've heard people say life is about decisions. But really, life is decisions. I mean, mm-hmm. I believe that we have free will, even though the scientific consensus on that is is iffy at best. But my primary experience is that I think I can choose, I can make my own choices. Um, and we're confronted with choices literally every moment. We don't see it that way. We, we see choices as specific, discrete events. Am I going to eat this or do that or, you know, listen to this or watch that. But actually every moment we have an infinite number of choices. So when the OCD sort of latched onto that aspect of my existence, I mean, it, it just, as I say in the show, I, I became its bitch, you know, it just owned me. I had, uh, and uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty awful. You know, I, I really had uh, a very limited life for many, many years as a result of it. Yeah. I mean, I've always said that choices are inherent superpower, you know, that is, yeah. The- that is the one thing that we as, as humans have the capability of doing. And, and you had the, the kryptonite for that, which is something that was preventing you from being able to execute on those choices in any sort of efficient manner. Um, yeah. So yeah, I can only imagine how, uh, how debilitating that must have, must have felt like. So, so that's how the show starts. You kind of give a picture of that, and then you read this study. And then, um, you know, let's keep telling the story, man. Yeah, sure. So, well, you know, I did not, I tried in college, um, I tried LSD, mushrooms and MDMA. Um, they didn't really work at the same time. No, not at the same time. (laughs) No poly trigon. I wasn't that advanced, at least back then. (laughs) I did, I did get into that in these experiences a little bit, uh, with, with mixed effects, uh, put it mildly, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, not, not, uh, not something I would dabble in again, but, um, but no, I had tried, so I, you know, I, I tried psychedelics. They didn't work for me. Now I know the reason they didn't work is because I was on heavy doses of SSRIs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which for many people block the effects of psychedelics. So mushrooms mm-hmm. worked a little bit. I had a mild trip. LSD and MDMA had no effect on me other than some sort of mild stimulation, but no psychedelic effects. So it wasn't like I was experienced with this stuff. But I read this study and, and it really was just a case of abject desperation. Nothing had worked. Um, I was really losing all hope. And, uh, and so I read this study. And so I figured, what do I have to lose? Uh, I actually had a lot of difficulty finding mushrooms. For whatever reason, at that time in New York, it seemed like it was a bit of a mushroom drought. So um, I asked a lot of people. I couldn't find mushrooms. Then, purely coincidentally or, you know, divine intervention, whatever your worldview is, uh, random chance, you know, some sort of intention, who knows, manifestation. I met, um, while doing comedy, I met a woman, uh, we started dating, and I later learned she had sort of unintentionally 
cured herself of clinical depression with, uh, with psychedelic cacti, with San Pedro, DCI, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And which was a staggering coincidence to me that I had met this person again, seemingly randomly who had had basically the exact experience I was looking for. And so we, uh, together, and she also happened to be a, uh, a psychologist. So I sort of became her unofficial research subject as it were. Cool. And, uh, and went down sort of the cactus rabbit hole. Uh, and then eventually that didn't really work for me. Uh, I figured out at that point that it was probably the SSRIs I got off of those. Yeah, because uh, uh, San Pedro or Wachuma is serotonergic. So it's going to have a similar dud effect as MDMA, I suppose, when you're on an SSRI because it's blocking the serotonin reuptake. Exactly, exactly. So it's the whole, yeah. So um, eventually I got off the SSRIs. And then I also discovered the strange and wonderful world of, uh, of research chemicals, Alexander Shulk and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I got and tried a lot of those. And without sort of giving away the end of the, the, end of the show, at a certain point, I, I think my obsessive nature sort of co-opted this whole quest to cure myself, where I was... I was looking for a silver bullet. I was looking for something that would take away the OCD, solve all my problems, save me, connect me to something beyond myself. And I went for it very aggressively. And of course, as you know, I, I've heard you talk about some of your psychedelic experiences. When you when you go at it that way, it, it, it usually doesn't end well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was essentially, I was trying to control an experience that inherently, I think the beauty of the psychedelic experience is actually letting go of control. Yeah, it's so surrender. Many, you have exactly. to approach it the opposite way that you would approach any problem in life, which is overcome the problem with the sheer ferocity of your intent and will and drive. And in this, in the psychedelic experience, it's how much can you release? How much control can you surrender? How much can you let go? You know, it's, it's really the, the opposite side of the coin. Yes. Uh, you put it better than I could have myself. And it took me a long time to realize that. So I was doing the exact opposite. I mean, to me, OCD is really a dysfunction of control or of a an erroneous idea of what and what you can control and how much. The idea is it's almost magical thinking. It's like if I can just, you know, if my hands are perfectly clean, and again, I didn't have that form, but if I make the perfect decision, well, then everything in my life will be perfect. But of course, that's not true. I could choose the perfect shirt, and that has very little bearing on my absolute existence because so much of, of our existence is seemingly beyond our control and certainly beyond our direct control. You can't sort of brute force, uh, you know, most things. So, you know, the, the cliche would be, yeah, I could put on the perfect shirt, but if I walk out the door and get hit by a bus, you know, well, it doesn't really matter. So OCD is sort of trying to control everything to the umpteenth degree. And of course, when you try to do that, you know, your life just spirals completely out of control. And so I applied that same mindset to psychedelics and uh, yeah, I had some pretty harrowing experiences. Um, you know, I was, I was humbled in a brutal, though ultimately I would say very compassionate way in the long term because it was what I needed, you know, I yeah. needed to see the limits of my control. And I also needed to have the experience of surrendering and expecting everything to be horrible, expecting to be engulfed by, you know, uncertain psychedelic experiences and actually realizing when I surrendered that this terrifying lack of control that I was trying to avoid, it actually turned into, you know, you can't really put it into words, but if I had to, I would say love, connection, um, 
yeah, those are the two words that come to mind. <clears throat> yeah, it's a it's sort of a, a trust in the universe, which is in its way a, a certain form of love, love of this existence, mm-hmm. love of this life. You know, it's it's faith to a certain degree. That, yes. That um, you know, it's it's just taking that trust fall and, and realizing that it's going to be all right no matter what. <laughs> you know, which yeah. which in itself is a form of of love for this grand experiment this great game that we're playing so it makes sense to me yeah absolutely that, that's a perfect way of putting it and, yeah. and that ultimately was transformative for me is is again i don't want to give away the end of the show but having these experiences where the illusion of control maybe the best way to put it the illusion of control that i'd clung so desperately to the idea that i could engineer this perfect existence if i could just make the perfect choice and everything would be exactly the way i wanted it to be that illusion was ripped away from me, you know, completely and totally uh, on mushrooms um, and on a few other chemicals. 2CE was also a, uh, and I would say 5-MeO-DMT was, was pretty instrumental. That was, yeah, wow. Talk about not being able to put something into words, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, uh, there's probably one of the, the only psychedelic experiences I've had where you know, one of one of my gifts is that during a psychedelic experience, inc- including incredibly intense ones like a boga, which usually a lot of people can't fully, like Graham Hancock describes in his book Supernatural, you can't fully remember everything that happens in that trip because it's so intense. I'm able to leave like a recorder on in my thoughts and be able to record what's happening and then recount that. The only time, the only exception to that is uh, <clears throat> this compound called Vilka which is a old Chavin recipe, 3000 year old recipe. That's a combination of largely 5-MeO-DMT, NN-DMT and bufotenine and you snort it and you snuff it up your nose and you snort, you snort enough of it until it feels like two railroad spikes being hammered up each hospital. That's how you know you got enough. And then you go to your room for 10 minutes and uh, for 20 minutes at a certain point it was getting, I was so far from this world I made a conscious choice. I was like, listen, I'm going into territory where the recorder isn't going to work. It's like, it's like going into the nebula in Star Trek or something, you know, like all recording devices are going to be turned off. I'm going to have absolutely no recollection of what happens for the next 10 minutes. And that, that was a really interesting experience for me because obviously right now, I don't know exactly what happened in that point because I can't recall it. It was too deep. I remember going into it and I remember coming out of it. You know, but I don't remember this 10 minute span in the middle because it was just too far. So, um, you know, 5-MeO is a, is a powerful, powerful tool, no doubt. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it. I think at a certain point with some of these experiences, because I think like you, I tend to be a, um, I like observing, you know, I'm just, I, 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 I love experience, you know, and that, that was part of the attraction of this too as I got more deep into the sort of psychedelic world is just having these incredibly novel experiences that ultimately defy words because they're not intellectual experiences. They can have that component certainly, but, uh, and I think that's also why just drawing this connection now, why they were so invaluable in teaching me surrender mm-hmm. because surrender, I under, I'd been exposed to the concept of acceptance, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD and indeed most mental illnesses, I'll put that in quotes, and that's a whole digression, but not to say that pathological suffering doesn't exist. I just don't believe in discrete categories. Oh, you're sick, you're well. Um, I think a lot of that serves the pharmaceutical industry. We're all sick to a certain degree, and we're all well to a certain degree. (laughs) Exactly. We all have addictions, which I would define as 
ways that we develop often unconsciously to avoid pain, but that ultimately create more pain for ourselves and crucially for others. Yeah. And, and I still have them. I'm sure I have many that I'm unaware of, but, um, but the surrender thing, I was taught that in cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea of, Hey, don't try to get rid of these thoughts and urges by thinking about them or engaging in rituals, accept the thoughts and urges. Cause once you accept them, you've robbed them a lot of their power. It may feel unpleasant to have this strong urge to change your shirt or to reverse a decision. But if you give into that urge and engage in the, you know, ritual behavior of reversing, it's not going to get rid of the urge. It's just going to make it stronger. So I understood that intellectually, but it was just an intellectual concept of acceptance. And it was under psychedelics for the first time that I was able to viscerally experience that, that letting go, uh, that you really can't put into words. You know, you call it, it's, it's a leap of faith. It's, um, so, uh, so yeah, the word, the, the verbal part of psychedelics, I mean, obviously in my show, I recount my certain trips, I don't have room for all of them. And I try to put them into words as best I can. Um, but, but ultimately I think, yeah, I mean, I think every experience words are inadequate, you know, yeah, words are not sure. the same you're as trying experience. To, you're trying to describe the ineffable with yes. concrete symbols, <laughs> you know, it's not, and, it's inherently impossible. And I would but say all of it get, get as close as you can. Yeah. Exactly. And it's all ineffable at some level, you know? Yeah. So I think, but particularly with these intense experiences, yeah, you have to leave words behind. You know, it's, it's interesting because you had enough of a certain pattern of behavior that it would be clinically diagnosed as a condition, OCD. But all of us have a bit of that to a certain degree, you know? Yes. And, and, and I think by looking at examples of the extreme, it can help us all recognize when we have the beginning stages of those patterns, patterns because all of that type of thinking is you know pretty unhelpful <laughs> to to our to our human optimization as as you know if you look at it that way <clears throat> and then but sometimes it takes an extreme example to recognize when we're doing that in our own life and how we can you know have more acceptance and surrender and and realize that there are a million paths and we can all we can do is choose a path with heart and and go from there you know there's always that Oh, maybe I should have gone to a different party. Maybe I should have ordered this different meal. Maybe I should have done this different thing. And we can second guess all our choices and spend our whole life out of the present moment, which is inherently less pleasurable and less enjoyable. Or we can accept that this is the choice we made and lock into that presence and have a much fuller and richer experience from enjoying the enjoying whatever choice that we made. You know, and I and I think that's really one of the things that the crazy philosopher Carlos Castaneda tries to impart as well is that there's all of these choices and all you can do is choose a path with heart and then let everything go, you know, because otherwise you're going to never be enjoying anything at all, you know, so, so really recognizing that and, and seeing extreme, but realizing that we all have it to a certain degree. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's probably more prevalent now. I mean, if you look at it from a sort of, evolutionary biology perspective, it makes sense to obsess over choices when the choices are, should I go hunting in that cave where there could be a bear that will kill me or there could be prey or should I go hunting in that cave? Should I, you know, should I camp uh, here where maybe a lion might attack or should I camp there? Every choice, you know, in our not so distant past really was, or maybe not every choice, but most choices were potentially life or death. Um, and it certainly <laughs> makes more, more sense from an evolutionary perspective to pay attention to I think it's called negativity bias to pay attention to potential threats rather than potential rewards because you know 
if you get eaten by a lion, that's much worse than say finding extra food or extra mating opportunities is good. So it makes sense that we evolved to place so much weight on I don't choices. Know. There's, there's certainly a trade-off. It depends on the mating opportunities and it depends true. on the lion. You know, I mean, definitely, definitely you put a lot of people in that situation. You know, the Absolutely. The lion. <laughs> That's, and, we, and we do do that too. I mean, if you look at, you know, even extreme sports, people risk. I mean, I think you can trace a lot of what people do uh, to, and even myself as a performer, it's not like it wasn't a conscious choice. Of, oh yeah, I'm gonna doing stand up to get girls, but sure, that was there somewhere. It, oh, wasn't, it's a it wasn't totally in the back of my mind. Yeah. If, so, if you're saying it's not a factor, yeah. Uh, you, sh you show me someone who's saying that's not a factor, I'm gonna show you a liar. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. I think it's always a factor. Um, sorry, I'm just closing something because my computer is a little slow, whatever, we'll deal with that later. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, but I, I think today now there are so many choices that really aren't life or death. Um, and that even with technology, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have said this, those choices are just proliferating exponentially. You know, on my mm -hmm. phone, I have 7 million possible decisions. I can download an innumerable number of apps. I can, that was an oxymoron, a numeral number, but I can download almost an infinite number of apps. I can do almost an infinite number of things with those apps. I can connect to people in all sorts of different ways. So there are so many choices that ultimately are not life or death, but I don't think we evolved with the evolutionary equipment, at least not uh, innately to say, oh, this isn't an important choice. I'm not going to worry about it, at least a little bit. Yeah. So, and also, it, yeah. It's interesting to me, the, the dichotomy that we're presented between mind and self, you know, and, and that's obviously something that became super apparent to you because you had a function, basically a software program running in your, in your mind that yourself dramatically wanted to get to change, right? Like yourself wanted yeah. the mind to stop being, obsessive compulsive about these things didn't recognize that self was mind mind was self you know because we and that's that's not just you that's almost everybody you know it's myself as well there's this thing there's this aspect of our brains that we can't seemingly control and then i think a lot of the work that i've done is to try and regain that unification and that kind of reconciliation between self and mind because that's ultimately you know, the ideal scenario where you can truly choose your thoughts, you can choose your way into the emotional state you want, you can choose your way into presence, you can choose your way out of these death spirals of insecurity and fears that are unwarranted and things like that, because your mind and yourself are are somewhat unified. And I, and I just wonder if that's a product of you know, something that's happened more culturally and technologically, or if that was just kind of the the natural cost of of awareness that you know kind of eating the fruit of knowledge in the garden of eden kind of metaphor um but it's certainly something that you know i think is a really important bridge uh <clears throat> bridge to make and really to reconcile mind and self and try to get those at least as close to the same you know the same oneness as possible yes i think it's um yeah i i, I there, there is that sort of divorce and you know i wonder also how much of this comes down to the fact that you know my view of psychedelics is i think we co-evolved with this stuff not coincidentally mm -hmm. and yeah, i think I yeah I, I don't think it's coincidental that there are these plants uh, and now synthetics though, though i mean well the discovery of lsd seems pretty damn coincidental or or not but you know highly unlikely but particularly plants that have been used for thousands and, and more than thousands of years 
that happen to interact with the human nervous system in a very specific way to produce very specific effects that are generally not attainable otherwise. I mean, deep meditative states, stuff like that, you can to some extent, but these pretty unique states that seem to have incredible value um, for really, in my view, for what you're talking about, which is sort of, I don't want to say self unification of self, you could say yeah. self awareness. And certainly um, it seems like that real divorce is, is relatively recent. It looks like, you know, most ancient uh, cultures, even Western cultures, had some sort of tradition, you know, I, I'm not well versed on this, but I know there's some evidence that, you know, major religious traditions, including Christianity, had some grounding in mystical experience potentiated by what we would call psychedelics, whatever those substances were. And that now that certainly mainstream society has become very divorced from that, I wonder how much of what we would call sort of the sickness of society and the individuals in that society is because, yeah, we, we didn't evolve to, in my view, to exist separately from this stuff. I mean, I've always thought it's funny. I had a joke about this uh, in stand-up. You know, if you believe in God, you can't really be against drugs. You can't say, oh yeah, God engineered everything exactly according to his plan, but oh yeah, these plants that happen to have a very specific effect, oh, he, he didn't intend that. He just overlooked that one. He wasn't, you know, he, was, uh, he, he wasn't on point that day. Right, right. Yeah, you, you made a mistake. Right, exactly. Yeah, Everything no. else is divine plan, but that, you know, he dropped the ball there. Especially because as, as you were saying, you know, the, this, the plant medicines and the brain, it's like a lock and key. You know, we have these tryptamine receptors with this inherent latent ability. And then you add these things like psilocybin and DMT, and it locks into these tryptamine receptors largely. There's other mechanisms yeah. of action for different things. And it produces this reliable effect that in clinical studies, like the one in Johns Hopkins, produces a top life experience, top top five, or in many cases, the single impactful best life experience that, that you could have. I mean, that seems a little too much to be a complete accident that that lock and key uh, would work in exactly in exactly that fashion. And then, of course, you, know, you have Terrence McKenna's Stone New Theory say, and yeah. um, a lot of the cave paintings that were uh, shown in uh, like Werner Herzog's Cave of Forgotten Dreams and uh, Graham Hancock did a lot of work on that. So there's certainly a lot of evidence of psychedelics kind of riding shotgun with humanity for for quite a while and, and i think they're probably the most important tool to bring us back into a certain alignment and a certain consciousness and i think it's happening you know i think e either through medical or religious exemptions um pretty soon here within the next decade i think all of the major psychedelics are going to be legal iboga will be legal um, medical ground, psilocybin medical, MDMA medical, uh, marijuana medical, and then probably San Pedro and ayahuasca will come through on the religious side, maybe eventually medical, but probably religious because it'll be difficult to standardize those brews. But it's all coming. You know, all of the allies, all of the allies are returning uh, to save humanity to a certain degree in their 11th hour. And obviously not all of humanity needs to be saved, but I think a shift of consciousness needs to happen to create a large course correction, like a giant cruise ship that's heading towards, you know, a melting iceberg. <laughs> you know, we need to, we need to turn the ship. And, and I think all these allies are coming uh, just at the right time. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And actually at the end of the show, every night I give a little, a little speech that's, that's quite similar to what you just said. Cause I'm, I'm donating all the profits of the show to, uh, to maps multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. And some people have said to me, you know, is that really the most important cause out there? You know, what about uh, world hunger? What about uh, war, violence, all that? 
but we're, the way I look at it, well, twofold. First of all, that study that I read that inspired my whole quest that ultimately transformed my life so dramatically was funded by MAPS, uh, also Hefter. Uh, but, <clears throat> but two, yes, there are more immediately dire challenges facing humanity right now, no question. But I don't think those are challenges like, let's say, world hunger. A lot of really smart people have worked really hard on that for a long time. There's been incremental progress, but it's still in the billions of people who are mal, you know, malnourished. I mean, so I feel like these, I don't want to say larger problems, but maybe more seemingly urgent problems, I don't think we're going to solve them without a fundamental shift in consciousness. In fact, I'll no. go a step further. Yeah. yeah, and say the reason they, they've probably arisen and have become so entrenched and so widespread is because there is that lack of consciousness that's uh, taken hold in mainstream society. Um, and has, you know, over, over, you know, over, well, now we're talking about centuries. So I feel like, yeah, the best chance for world peace, I'm not even saying this facetiously, if every world leader, uh, you know, took a strong dose of, uh, of mushrooms or, or LSD or ayahuasca, uh, ideally together, I, I think that's our, <laughs> I think that's our best shot. I mean, keep the nuclear buttons. Well, there's, the there's a, but, yeah, there's an archeological case example of that. And it's the culture of Chavin. I've you heard know, you for, talk about that. Yeah. For, so for 800 years or so, there was a culture that thrived in South America and they would offer Wachuma, which is a serotonergic, very serotonergic feels very heart opening, you know, a very kind of love inspiring, um, medicine that they would offer to, all pilgrims who came by, all leaders, all all people, anybody who wanted it, um, could get could get wachuma d delivered by at the capital of Chavin, and there is no evidence of war for that entire period that Chavin was thriving. Now, eventually, a peoples came in, and for whatever happened, that civilization, um, you know, went under after eight hundred years. You don't know exactly why, but it's one of the unique periods in human history, which is you know, full of conflict in every corner that you look. And in this one little area um, for 800 years, there was 100% peace. And it's because, you know, these plants are, these plants are, you know, agents of consciousness. And, and I think allowing people to see other people as themselves living a different life, it really robs you of the satisfaction of war and rape and pillage and hoarding different goods and not providing them for others. So, you know, me, my life, I'm 100% dedicated to the upstream issues of consciousness because I fully believe that is how change will happen. There's plenty of wealth in the world to fix a lot of these problems if applied to the right, with the right minds and in the right ways. Um, but people don't love people enough in order to share that. And yeah. you have someone like Bernie Sanders who wants to tax that money away, but it'll never work. You can't forcibly take money from people and expect it to... To, to change the world in a really dramatic way. People are smart, they're savvy, they're gonna hide the money, they're gonna move it around, they're gonna avoid that, and then the government is gonna waste it. You know, really how you get that money from the uber wealthy is you change the consciousness of the uber wealthy. You know, you you bring them in and show them a different way and, and allow them to want to give to their fellow man because they recognize all people, rich or poor, as themselves. And and that's that's the way it's gonna happen. Anything else, you know, donating, money on the downstream side for you know sandwiches or bags of rice like yeah it's good and it's compassionate work but it's really bailing out the titanic with a champagne glass you know like there's no way that you're going to solve the problem unless you mend the whole of the ship and the, and the whole of the ship is consciousness it's it's love it's getting the trauma you know out of people and, and allowing them to 
remove the delusion that's clouding their eyes and clouding their hearts. Well, yeah, I mean, that to me is one of the great fruits of the psychedelic experience is empathy is and you put it perfectly seeing, you know, you, you the distinction between self and other evaporates and uh, as well as the realization of what I'd call sort of, you know, ultimate subjectivity. You realize that your point of view is one of an infinite point of views. You don't have a lock on truth. And from that comes more respect for other people. I mean, how can you, I was actually writing a, a post about this right before we got on, I'll publish it shortly probably on Facebook, but, you know, saying how everyone in ISIS should, should take mushrooms because I think the effect <laughs> that psychedelics reliably produce is, well, A, uncertainty. You realize that you don't really know what's going on, but also a sense that something is going on, but something that is beyond certainly intellectual understanding. And that, uh, that, that, um, that ultimately, yeah, I mean, how can, you know, you, you can't kill someone unless if you feel that you are absolutely right and they're absolutely wrong at some level. Yeah. And I think psychedelics robs you of that seemingly comforting, but ultimately incredibly <laughs> destructive delusion. Yeah, and there is a caveat to that, especially with mushrooms. I mean, if you look at the history um, of the Aztecs, you know, there's good very point. good evidence that Moctezuma and all of his priests were high as shit on psilocybin <laughs> right, right. and cutting hearts out and right. feeding them to Huitzilopochtli, the hummingbird god. You know, so <laughs> there is a certain element of, you know, mushrooms in particular will allow you, will still allow you the sanctity of choice. And if you direct your intent towards the dark, the dark energies of the world, which is the energy to kill and conquer. And um, the mushrooms will rise. That's the way we're playing. That's the way we're playing. Because in, in my view, in going deep with the mushrooms, you understand that <clears throat> the world is designed with balance. And the dark and the light are both equally important forces, you know, because that's what truly allows free will. If everybody could become enlightened just with an instant thought, then the game wouldn't be fun. You know, what kind of video game do you keep playing and, and, and go back to over and over again that doesn't have monsters? You know, you're in a first yeah. person shooter, but there's nobody to shoot. You know, it's like nobody wants to play that game. So the world is set up so that there is this balance and that both sides feel good. And, and one thing in particular that mushrooms will allow you to do is if your intent is generally for medicine, you know, to feel good and, to, you know, see things in the universe and, to, you know, figure shit out, then it'll show you that. But if your intent is, to fuck some people up, you know, mushrooms very likely will, will go along with that. Now, I think there's other medicines that can kind of tilt the scales a little bit more. And, and I think that's where MDMA is a particularly um, elegant tool in that it's very difficult to turn MDMA away from an empathic kind of state of heightened love. You know, it, it has, because of the effect of serotonin itself, I think that would be, you know, if I'm if I'm dosing ISIS, for example, like that's for <laughs> that's sure my choice. That's your first for choice. Sure, for sure my choice. Because, you know, while, while I, <laughs> right. if you're going to roll the dice, I'd certainly roll the dice with mushrooms because it's going to just going to change some of them. But a few of them are going to turn into Moctezumas <laughs> and just be in a in a head cutting frenzy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so so it's, it's interesting, these different medicines. And uh, and I and I just certainly wanted to bring that up because that nothing's a panacea, you know, for right. sure. Yes. And that was, that was what I was looking for in my own quest was a panacea. And, you know, and I think what I got was ultimately more valuable than that, you know? Yeah.
Yeah. So do you have like a, a short section of the show that you could like a like a two minute little part that you could uh, perform here for us? Give us a little like a, a little preview bit. That's, all right. Let me think about this. Um, what would be a good. What would be a good starting point? Um, Well, why don't I, I'll do, you know, I'll just do like 30 seconds from the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, I'm, cool. I, I'm, uh, I'm not quite in my thespianic groove, but, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but here we go. So, all right, let me get into this. So, yeah. So there's the iPod and there's something called the iRiver. They're both sitting on my desk. They're both playing the same song on repeat. I have my headphones on and I'm switching the plug from one player to the other. Back and forth and back and forth. And I queue up different songs in different genres, different instruments, different vocal ranges and back and forth and back and fourth, and after two days, it's clear. It's clear. I mean, the iRiver sounds better. Overall, like the iPod, it does have a hair more nuance in the mid-range, but the iRiver, it has this sort of richness to it. You know, it's just, it's more full-bodied. So good, 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 good. You're keeping the iRiver. This is done. This is done. Just, just return the iPod right now. And so I am. I'm slipping the iPod back into its box to return it. And the box itself, I can't help but notice that it's hinged, you know? It's my hand. It's hinged. Uh, kind of like a jewel box, which is actually... It's actually fitting because when the iPod with those curved chrome edges melding seamlessly into that minimalist white face, it's beautiful. Sensual even, like I, I kind of want to lick it. <laughs> Whereas the iRiver, of course, no one knows what an iRiver looks like, where to begin. Um, well, it's made in Korea, uh, I assume South Korea, but maybe it's North because this thing, it looks communist. It's this stout utilitarian slabs that are with switches and dials and knobs and buttons. And people get mugged for their iPods. No one will mug you for an iRiver. If they try, you just bludgeon <laughs> them with the thing. But this thing's going to be tucked away in my pocket 90% of the time. The aesthetics are relevant. Yeah, but the iPod's battery's better. I mean, who cares how good the iRiver sounds if you can't even turn the thing on? But there's probably a reason people don't line up for two days outside the iRiver store. And, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that was awesome, man. You were a awesome. great, you were a great one-person audience, Aubrey. I have to say, because if I'm doing this for just one person and they're not feeling it, that's awesome, man. That's that was really, really, really good. Um, we're gonna, so we're going to yeah. try and release this as soon as possible yeah. to give people time if they're in New York to uh, to catch the show. Um, especially Please. since you just released uh, another week. That's awesome. So, um, what's the show called? Where can people get tickets? Yes, yeah, yeah. Let me uh, let, let me let me give you the info. So the show is called The Mushroom Cure. Uh, the easiest thing to remember is if you, if you just go to themushroomcure.com, T-H-E-M-U-S-H-R-O-O-M-C-U-R-E.com, all one word. Uh, that's linked to tickets. The show is playing at uh, Cherry Lane Theater in the West Village of New York, uh, and we're there almost every night until uh, through August 13th, Saturday, August 13th. And then hopefully it'll have continued life uh, in New York and hopefully we'll bring it around to other cities as well. Yeah, bring There's it to also, Austin, man. I would love to. One of my, I have a good friend there and he's been talking about bringing it there. I, he, he's, he's seen the show a bunch and, and he thinks it would uh, find a receptive audience there. So yeah, you yeah, and I should well, talk. Yeah, I would love you, to. If you come to Austin, we'll make sure to make sure to help you out there. We got uh, obviously a lot of sympathetic, uh, sympathetic. Yeah. 
about here. I, I am down, and it's it's a lightweight show. It's just me and a chair, so <laughs> you can do it Perfect. anywhere. Perfect. Well, that's awesome, man. It's been great having this chat with Likewise. you. Likewise, I look forward to uh, to keeping in touch, and I really look forward to seeing the show. Um, yeah, as yeah. well. Where's what's your other social media platforms and everything that people? Yes. Can, uh, so, uh, so I should clarify. So I am a stand-up comic. This show, as you just saw, it's not really stand-up comedy. It's me telling this completely true story. Uh, but my other work, uh, easiest way to access that is just adamstrauss.com, A-D-A-M-S-T-R-A-U-S-S.com. Um, um, uh, Twitter is atomstrauss, A-T-O-M-S-T-R-A-U-S-S, uh, atomic mass, that sort of thing, just because someone else had Adam. Same for Instagram, <laughs> uh, though I'm not too active there. Uh, and then there's a Facebook page for The Mushroom Cure that you can you know, find by searching. And uh, and yeah, you know, I'm I'm eager to share this story with as many people as possible because it uh, it seems to touch people. You know, I love doing stand-up. I love making people laugh. And hopefully with this show, I mean, not hopefully, they do laugh too. But also what I really value about doing it is there's tears too. People cry during the show and after the show. And, I, you know, I, I want uh, it connects at a deep level, hopefully, for at least some people. So I'm, I'm grateful that I get to share this story. And I'm grateful to share a little bit of the story with you. And, uh, yeah, if you're in New York, please uh, come on down. No doubt, my friend. No doubt. Well, that was awesome. Um, yeah. Like I said, everybody, check them out, and uh, we'll certainly be in touch. Thanks so much, Aubrey. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Adam. Bye-bye. I'd like to acknowledge the company that is the expression of so many things I love, onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com, and also wearspace.com with two S's, putting out some really dope clothes and supporting my favorite charities. Lastly, please check out my blog, aubreymarcus.com, for the latest in all the ventures happening in my world. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, and let's make this positivity contagious. Thanks for tuning in.